0: The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. Hey, everybody. Okay, so just to sort of start off, I mean, a lot of us know, obviously, have been Inspired and fixated on the Arab Spring and the and the new struggles that have been uh, breaking out in in Europe uh, recently, one um, I wanted to start off first of all by saying that by, these have by no means stopped uh, north of the Sahara and actually Africa over the past few months has has. Um, Uh, experienced a a wave of revolt um, with pro-democracy movements from every place from uh, Senegal to Zimbabwe to Swaziland uh, to fight against price hikes and austerity in Sudan, South Africa. I'm sorry, you can shut if you want. I just thought it was hot. Sorry. where just as we've seen in North Africa, um, uh, p- ordinary African people in sub-Saharan Africa are rising up, driven by the same forces of, re- of recession as elsewhere and inspired by the courage in, of activists in Cairo and beyond. But, but to, to really to talk about class and class struggle in Africa today, I think we need to first of all start with the legacy of imperialism. Um, for, for centuries, beginning with the slave trade, the West has ruthlessly exploited the African continent. And Karl Marx wrote, uh, this is a famous quote people probably know, the turning of Africa into a commercial warren for the hunting of black skins was one of the cheap sources of primitive accumulation that signaled the rosy dawning of the era of capitalist production. In the late 19th century, in the scramble for Africa, the continent was arbitrarily divided up into colonies by the European powers to plunder the continent of its enormous natural resources. After independence, African states were reduced to pawns in the world economy and Cold War rivalries. Their paths to development hobbled by colonialism's legacy. Since in the 1970s, the West has immiserated Africa with massive debt uh, uh, to the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, paying them more than on social spending for their own nations. Western Western domination has left Africa with devastating rates of poverty, hunger, and disease. The continent today has a national per capita yearly income of about $1,400 and an average life expectancy of only about 55 years. Uh, about, around two-thirds of Africans have no access to standard sanitation facilities, and two-thirds of the world total world population suffering from HIV and AIDS live in Africa. But Africa also has unbelievable resources, uh, but these only enrich a handful of African rulers and foreign capitalists. And this is sort of one of the contradictions that I want to talk about today in this talk. But this picture that I've painted is an historical legacy, in in the words of uh, the author Patrick Bond, who wrote a book called uh, Looting Africa. Trade by force dating back centuries, slavery that uprooted and dispossessed around 12 million Africans, precious metals spirited away, the 19th century emergence of racist ideologies to justify colonialism the construction of settler colonial and extractive colonial uh, systems, Cold War battlegrounds, proxies for the U.S.-USSR conflicts filled with millions of corpses, violence such as witnessed in blood diamonds and coltan, societies used as guinea pigs in the latest, corporate pharmaceutical tests, and the list could continue. Today there's actually a new uh, chapter to this story, and that's a new scramble for resources in the... uh, uh, in Africa, between the United States, Europe, and China, and other powers that are seeking to that are seeking to consolidate its grip on African um, uh, and its strategic resources, mainly oil, um, which is obviously the world's most important resource. Um, but meanwhile, the global austerity that's been unleashed on uh, workers and the poor of this world have brought have brought more devastation to Africa. And so it's these forces, uh, the new imperialism, austerity, and so on, that's actually gathering resistance across the continent. And um, and the central role of how the working class in Africa plays in this in this growing resistance is going to be the subject of the second the second half of my talk. But where I want to start off first of all is to it's to, to, to get a handle on. Uh, a little bit better about why is Africa so poor because there's there's kind of two stories um in the mainstream media about conditions in Africa can people see me over this podium yeah yeah okay um, there's um, I need the podium. It's a book? Yeah, yeah. There's there's two stories. Which is one one is basically this kind of hand wringing um, from you know the sort of liberal media and and, and not just liberal media about you know Africa is this <laughs> eternal basket case. They just can't get their economies together and so on. Just can't really quite get their societies in order. Uh, but then there's a new kind of story, which is um, for people here who've sort of follow. The business press. This is particularly dominant about how exciting Africa is right now because it's such a uh, an exciting. There's a there's a new surge in investment in Africa, um, and it's certainly true that there's um, there's been a boom in the past few years in in uh, Africa for uh, global corporations, hedge funds, a kind of new rush of uh, of money from commodities that's made African uh, growth rates since the um, actually bounce back faster in Africa than in in, in a, a fairly large in a number of other parts of the globe uh, the Financial Times described it this way with many of the 48 economies rebounding from the crisis fast meaning it, the Forty-eight economies in Sub-Saharan Africa rebounding from the crisis faster than the rest of the world. Sub-Saharan Africa is increasingly viewed as an opportunity rather than a burden. It is right. Isn't this nice? The Financial Times to tell us this. Um, it is rising rapidly up the agenda for global investment managers and is talked about as never before in almost every big financial center. Um, The World Bank predicts that foreign direct investment into sub-Saharan Africa this year will reach over $40 billion, which is a huge jump from um, histor- uh, from historic numbers. Africa has about 10% of the global oil reserves um, and possibly more. There's a lot of unexplored areas. Uh, and dependence of the United States and other developed nations on oil from developing nations is actually has been rising for a number of years and is continuing to rise and is actually fueling competition between them. And that's um, an, imp- an important dynamic to understand in this picture. The United States consumes a quarter of the world's oil uh, but possesses only three percent of the reserves, and so there 's a there 's a major problem that they need to that they need to solve. The the West Africa is already on track to uh, supply up to about a quarter of oil to the US um, in the next few years and already oil from Africa is has surpassed oil from the Middle East. This has been true for a number of years. Probably a lot of people people may not have, have heard that. For example ExxonMobil gets 30% of its oil from Africa. That's a really that's a really big number. But besides oil there's large there's other large amounts of strategic minerals um, um, that the U.S. relies upon that originate in Africa, like platinum, gold, coltan, which is used in cell phones. South Africa alone um, has forty percent, produces forty percent of the world's gold. Um, but I think you know I, I touched on this. Oh no. Um, I know it's a really bad picture. Um, the. Um, the, I touched on this already, but, but this, this immense of amount of wealth that I'm describing has not even begin, begun to close the gap between the, the first of all the wealth of the corporations like the Exxon Mobil's that that actually exploit in this country, but also that you know the tiny handful of, of African, extremely rich African elites, and then the majority of ordinary Africans on the on the other side. Um, but it's actually, in fact, deepened the immiseration um, of, uh, of 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 um, uh, of, of the people that live there because literally the billions that are invested uh, of dollars that invest in the continent go straight into the pockets of corporations and, and African rulers. And really, I think you have to say that this drive for profit, when you look at the conditions in Africa it's at, and, and, and what it leaves behind is, is criminal in terms of the record. I mean, for example, Angola, which is uh, last year was, the, was Africa's leading oil producer, um, is um, 10% of infants in Angola die before they reach their their first birthday. Ten percent. Um, Angola has earned they, it's just raked in tens of billions of dollars from oil. But it's the UN ranks it almost at the very bottom of the list in terms of the UN UN development indicators. Life expectancy is 46 years. 46 years. And infant mortality is 20 times greater than it is in the West. So these are these are you know I don't think it's an understatement to say that these are criminal kinds of statistics here. Um, There was a new report that came out a a couple weeks ago. Um, People may have heard about this in the news. The African Development Bank, which is like a bit, you know, well, it's obviously a business-friendly institution, um, has decided that one in three Africans is now middle class. And this is sort of feeds this sort of myth that's being cultivated in the business press about Africa being kind of ripe for investment and, and, and new consumers and so on. But in reality, just to sort of cut through some of the, the myths, uh, 61% of Africans live on uh, less than $2 a day. And I'm mean, just forgive me while I go through these numbers because I think it's kind of important. Um, also, the other big oil producer from Africa is Nigeria. Uh, same picture... Uh, hundreds of billions of dollars in oil revenues that have accrued to um, investors since uh, over the past half a century. But the number of people who subsist on $1 a day in Africa is more than 70%. And that's doubled since 1970. Since, so poverty has just immiserated. And I'll get into a little bit about how that's happened. But right now, there's been, and people know, oil prices are have gone up. There's uh, hikes in commodity prices overall. And this has been a really big boom for the oil corporations, the mining corporations, and so on. But what this has also meant is that food prices have gone up. And so the immiseration for millions of ordinary people has just has 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 worsened and worsened people um, driven below the poverty line. Um, (laughs) In fact, um, almost 50 million people are now below the poverty line than they were before the recession. This is actually according to the World Bank itself. Um, and this has been exacerbated by people may have heard stories about this massive land grabs in Africa where millions of acres, um, including being uh, driven by uh, universities like Harvard and Vanderbilt, are buying up hectares of African land as this sort of great investment, um, uh, small farmers and peasants being pushed off, um, off their land, displaced um, with land being bought up on the cheap. But just to kind of look a little scrape beneath the surface a little bit more at this, because I think that the understanding the actual causes of poverty and inequality in Africa is very important, because there's there's a sort of you know kind of um, this this. Uh, Finger wagging that I talked about before, this kind of hypocritical blame the victim rhetoric, where Western politicians and investors they kind of you know talk about African economies as as failures when it's really an histor- the historical legacy of colonialism and neoliberalism, including financial financial institutions like the World Bank, the IMF, and so on that are that are to blame. And I know there was a talk earlier today that kind of went through some of the roots of the colonial period of this and how Africa was systematically uh, reduced to a source of raw materials, um, while alongside thwarting industrialization and development on the continent. Um, just sort of fast-forwarding to the post-independence period, uh, after independence, African ruling classes really emphasized state investment and national development based on import substitution industrialization, meaning to diversify their own uh, excuse me domestic production in, in, in order to make their own economies less dependent on foreign imports, and um, socialist Leo Zelig, who is the editor of this great book from Haymarket Books, um, described described the process um, as follows. He said, "The attraction of state directed capitalism was not accidental. It spoke of the reality of the Soviet Union's rapid development. Independence represented a race for." top-down, autonomous industrialization in scores of emergent nations, and state capitalism offered the magic key to development. So this is part of the the appeal. However... Um, this is This is me, not Leo Zelig. Um, autonomous national development uh, actually you know faltered very quickly um, after independence when Western powers actually and institutions took steps to ensure that African nations were not able to develop uh, an independent uh, a, a basis for uh, economic independence and By the 1970s along with that, the collapse of worldwide commodities prices um, and state capitalism. Uh, uh, the problems within state capitalist economies. The world had lurched into recession. Uh, a lot of the loans that the third world and Africa and elsewhere received had turned into uh, uh, horrific debts to the World Bank and the IMF, and who um, imposed all kinds of requirements onto African nations that they slash social spending and privatize government-owned industries and services. So, um, what the, what happened from that was that for every one dollar that was sent to parts of the world, the th- such as Africa and the third world, $25 of that went back to the Western, um, these institutions in terms of debt servicing. So um, under colonialism, I think it's fair to say that Africa turned into You know, not to oversimplify, but really a conveyor belt for of raw materials that went that that left the continent. I think Africa today is, um, you could say, is um, returning um, has returned to that. It, It exports the bulk of its natural resources. At independence in the 1960s, a lot of nations in Africa were actually food independent. Um, which is really important. But a decade later, the picture after this process that I just outlined, the picture had completely changed. And in some cases, industrialization was actually reversed and growth rates fell uh, during the 1990s. But again, it's important to say that not everyone was hurt by these conditions, that there was a tiny, and there is, a tiny ruling class in Africa that became extremely wealthy during this process, and wealth that um, continues to shoot upwards um, today with this new boom in, in, uh, in exports and commodity prices. There's a, a, Nigerian, a great left-wing Nigerian writer named Aiki Okanta who describes how there is nothing inevitable about resource-rich Nations, uh, regions regressing into poverty and remaining in the ditch of privation. This was largely the result of colonial conquest and the undemocratic institutions of governance put in place by the British, for example, but not just the British, to exploit the wealth of the country undisturbed by the local people, subsequently handed over to carefully chosen political leaders who would go on to protect their interests after the colonial <laughs> rulers quit. Um, and finally, it's worth pointing out um, Uh, a sort of, you know, uh, notwithstanding high-profile state visits of U.S. members of the U.S. ruling class to Africa, that the world's most powerful nations have a, a long track record of pledging Billions of dollars in aid to to Africa and breaking those promises um, year in and year out. There was a famous conf- uh, uh, the Glen Eagles Summit in 2005, which was seen to be the called I think like the end of debt or what have you. 25 billion was pledged to Africa. Less than half of that has been de- has been delivered on. So, but the main point that I just want to again. Uh, uh, come away with here is that African poverty, it's not simply a fact of nature. It's not simply a given. It was manufactured through the processes of exploitation and neoliberalism, and again, the historical legacy that had emerged out of colonialism and underdevelopment. So, um, just to shift really quickly into just one final kind of um, uh, element today, which is that I mentioned in terms of the growing conflict and competition over resources, and that is an important uh, dynamic that's also fueling instability and uh, class polarization. in Africa right now, imperial competition. China this, um, is actually playing a very important uh, role in this story, and people may be, you know, familiar with. You know, Hillary Clinton commented on this on this recently, um, but the, you know, alongside the, in the U.S. and China are really. Um, you know they're a little bit, I wouldn't say at loggerheads, but there's their major competitors in this, and also other nations as well. China is uh, the major source of investment in in Africa. It's the main driver of their growth rate at this point, and it's the, it's Africa's biggest trading partner. It receives uh, the bulk of uh, it receives more um, exports than any other single place, and it 35 um, percent it, uh, of China's oil comes from Africa. It's huge. Huge number. Um, in the past two years, China has given more loans to poor countries, mainly in Africa, but other places as well, than the World Bank. Um, just to kind of underscore that. Um, but there's a there's a there's a sort of character to um, aid in you know, uh, Chinese uh, aid, which is that it it's different than the World Bank and the IMF, where it kind of comes along with development projects. Um, they build dams or build roads, uh, construct dams, and so on, and so you know for from the point of view of African states, it presents this opportunity to sort of free themselves a little bit from the imf and the, and and the world bank uh, and and that and the financial dependence but it 's important I, I you know just to underscore that china doesn 't represent any kind of you know nicer, kinder, gentler imperialism and it 's sort of you know in a way similar to. Uh, the 19th century colonialism where, you know, the British, for example, they would build rail railroads and um, roads that would, you know, that were purely to help facilitate extraction that would run from, you know, mines straight to the ocean and so on. And also to build political, um, cement political allegiances as well. So, um I think that the picture, this kind of intensified competition, really um, sort of exemplifies uh, what Marxists talk about in terms of you know imperial imperial conflict that's sort of rooted from the from the earliest days of capitalism, and you can sort of see how this is spilling over into militarization. For example, right now China has warships that are engaged in exercises off the um, eastern coast of. Uh, of Africa and the Indian Ocean. The U.S. at the same time is also quite concerned about political instability in certain parts of Africa. I don't really have time in this talk to go into that, but if people want to ask questions about where that is and what that looks like, but Obama uh, bumped up uh, defense spending in Africa by 300 percent in last year's um, in last year's budget, that just for, you know, for sub-Saharan Africa, there was a command center ca- um, called AFRICOM that people may um, be aware of, and I think that's something that activists ha- have already um, taken some initiative around and that I, would, I think everyone here should, should speak out against. It has echoes of a long history of Cold War intervention and funding proxy forces. Again, something I can't really get into here. Um, but there's a, a great quote from one of these, from an activist that is, Organizing against AFRICOM, where he uh, talks about, I mean, where he says the following: Local Africans are demanding respect and a share in what is, after all, their oil. They are now routinely viciously suppressed by African troops trained and equipped with American tax dollars. When resistance continues, as it certainly will, America is preparing to up the ante with more American equipment, with military and civilian advisors, with bombs, bullets, and if need be, American bodies. That's what AFRICOM is all about and what it will be doing in the new century. Okay, so this is a pretty, you know, kind of devastating picture that I've just painted here. So um, just to kind of take a turn uh, what's what's the what's the solution to this uh, uh- uh, militarization and poverty, and kind of corporate rampage that I've just been describing. I mean, clearly, you know, as I said, the Obama solution is to sort of ramp up more military hardware and so on. Um, development programs, um, and people can certainly take up the question of NGOization and so on. Development programs come at the very least with all kinds of strings attack, a- attached and cannot begin to overcome some of the sort of historical legacies that I've described. But on the other side of it, um, it in Africa, has actually a very long history of militant struggle and mass movements from the anti-colonial period, um, supported by millions of peasants and workers. Actually, uh, shattered control of European powers on the continent, and um, they. I, I think this is their, this is a tradition that I, I kind of want to turn to right now. Anti-colonial nationalist movements of trade unions, workers, students, peasants, um, really reflected. The, the aspirations for profound change to the conditions of, of, of the vast majority. Uh, and leaders of these movements um, pledged to transform the, the, the inequality and so on that had been that had been handed down to them by colonialism. But these new national states were they were too small, too politically, uh, and economically weak to fulfill these hopes of the population in the era of liberation. And so the elites of these new states were forced into the mold of, of ruling classes uh, 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 elsewhere in the world, exploiters of workers, of peasants, driven by the logic of international competition that I described before, nationalization of industry uh, that enriched the the minority. Um, And so these crushed aspirations of these national movements presented uh, a a potential challenge from below to to these new ruling classes, and who sometimes... Uh, turned to repression to, to squash them. But it, it wasn't merely outright repression that undermined uh, the building of an independent working class movement, but also the dominance of, a nat- for one, of a national development model that shaped trade union movements and an emphasis on economic issues at the expense of broader national questions. And this uh, Leo Zelig takes up, um, he has a new book coming out, soon, but soon, I I think, uh, on on Africa. Um, He takes up this question of independence, I think, in a very important way. He says, Why did a wider politics beyond independence not emerge? The emergent African working class engaged in anti-colonial struggles was relatively small without a developed ideological position. It emerged into a political context dominated by both nationalism and Stalinism, uh, and a Stalinist form of communism that saw political progress in distinct stages, with the question of socialism entirely postponed until after the transition to democracy was complete. This, unfortunately, dovetailed with the accusation that organized workers presented a labor aristocracy whose selfish defense of their privileges was at the expense of other particularly rural sections of society. So, given these political challenge, what, what is actually the uh, liberatory potential of the African working class today, and this is what I want to take up, because there's some on the left who have actually drawn the conclusion that Africa's high levels of unemployment, the large concentration of peasantry, the dominance of slums uh, in the cities has undermined the possibility for working class resistance in the way that Marxists um, understand it, a class with the social weight uh, uh, to act collectively based on their relationship to, to the means of production. Mike Davis's book The Planet of Slums um, is well-known Known, uh, example of this argument. People may be familiar of this, where he describes urbanization without industrialization and even, I mean, w- urbanization without industrialization and a class, a working class is dislodged from its emancipatory potential. Others um, on the left have argued that the working class is just is too hopelessly divided in Africa by ethnicity, by religion, by urban versus rural divides, and, and so on. Alongside these political question. There's other uh, um, very daunting uh, factors that confront the building of of an African uh, a workers movement in Africa into a force that's actually capable of taking on uh, capital in their in their own in their own nation uh, as uh, uh, in a battle against. Um, you know, who are basically locked in a competition for vital resources, as I described. Um, all the obstacles of, of, uh, of militarization, <laughs> repression, and so on. Um, so combined with um, this sort of uh, uh, uneven development and vast unemployment from economic restructuring, deindustrialization, these are, the left really has its work cut out for it in terms of uh, uh, challenges on this landscape. And so, and, and Leo Zelig um, has some Helpful things to say about this question because he says, in some respects, Mike, Mike Davis's thesis in the Planet of Slums is correct. Many of the urban unemployed created over the past 30 years cannot be mem- counted on as members of a reserve army because they've never had a wage <laughs> job and cannot expect to ever have one. But they go on. they go on to say... This group is mixed together in the cities with the employed segments of the working class. The political consequences of this are vital for radical social movements. They may follow a lead from the working class, but it's this proletariat... in this, the proletariat faces competition from other forces, sectarian, communal, and so on. Um, so, I think the point that they that I would argue that then that the point they're trying to make is that despite the challenges that I've described, the unevenness in African society, the starting point has to in understanding change in Africa has to remain the centrality of the working class for resistance, and likewise with the new scramble uh, for wealth in Africa and the role that workers play in producing it. Africa's workers are actually crucially positioned to battle exploitation because of their close ties to international capital um, and the potential for for for, for global uh, struggles that that link um, that that link the developed and the developing world. So all these connections, I think, are very vital for us to understand that potential today. Uh, but another, way, another aspect to understand, though, is that continent-wide, the African working class is, is concentrated in key centers of working class uh, resistance, mainly in South Africa, places like the Nigerian oil fields, um, and other places where workers are concentrated together. They, have, they, they provide the social weight to bind together struggles of the entire region, struggles of not just workers but of peasants and others. And to overcome different barriers um, uh, between them, Um, so um, just to you know, it social movements have have a very have a long history in the post-colonial era, and I'll just kind of go through this. Uh, pretty quickly, but I mean, with the working class at the heart of these struggles, but also bringing in peasants, students, the urban poor, um, there have been uh, very significant upheavals against neoliberalism, structural adjustment um, that have gone where millions have moved into struggle against some of the worst manifestations of privatization, globalization, and, and so on. Uh, they really, they've kind of burst out in the 1980s into the 1990s. They were called the IMF riots, um, and um, an explosion of struggle um, into, to, that went into the 1990s brought down um, over African regimes uh, by pro democracy movements that were on the stage at that time there were There were, pro, there were strikes um, and multi party elections that were had for the first, held for the first time in, in a generation um, and social movements that actually came together with both Political and economic demands, but I think it's uh, the sort of the highlighting example to uh, to hold up is the defeat of apartheid in South Africa, which uh, at the hands of workers um, in, in 1994 brought down um, the you know the, the one of the most repressive uh, regimes at the world uh, in the world, and I think you know, sort of utilized the sort of key uh, uh, role that they played at that at that um, at that point in in that economy and so on. So in other words, despite the unevenness across the continent it 's a political question about about that potential um, and one, uh, one sort of important example that I, I want that i 'd like to give that illustrates this is um, the example of of the civil war in in the Congo, which um, as many people are aware of this the civil war um, at uh, one thousand nine hundred and ninety eight to two thousand and four which killed almost uh, at which um, almost four million people died but in one thousand nine hundred and ninety one in uh, the Congo was Zaire. At that time, it was the scene of a massive working class upheaval, actually. Hundreds of thousands of public sector workers, other workers, went on strike for better working conditions and pay, uh, and for a new government, and driven by the obscenity of living surrounded by some of the world's most wealthiest uh, resources um, with per capita income that was worse than it was um, since, oh no. Okay, I'm going to really have to speed up. And maybe you can let me go over a minute. I don't know. Okay. Don't All right. Um, but the key question in in Zaire was uh, both the movement from below, but not just a, move, a revolt from below, but also the leadership of that movement. Um, at that time, the, the, uh, the mainstream, the sort of mainstream opposition leaders really saw the role of the working class um, more as a vehicle to exert pressure on Mobutu, the dictatorship, as opposed to a force that could independently uh, uh, organize and Actually, put fundamental change at the at the center. So um, uh, Zelig describes how uh, Mobutu was able to disorient and buy off opposition figures, but at the, alongside of that, there was uh, independent uh, political uh, leadership and organization that that emerged essentially on the street with with uh, 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 the beginnings of uh, of, uh, of debate, of discussion, um, call to action, demands for the opposition to um, uh, 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 to um, to, to, to actually not falter on the on the on the uh, on the promises that, that they had that they had made and so on. so the beginnings of an independent, an independent movement, but unfortunately, this this leadership was uh, was too weak to overcome the uh, the weaknesses of the uh, of the the politics of the main opposition figure, and so I think figures, and so the hope for an actual independent workers' movement um, and the possibilities of unseating Mobutu really sort of fell back to. Uh, uh, the, the sort of the camp of a military um, alternative in the form of law and military opposition uh, in the form of Laurent Kabila who is backed by foreign powers and the civil war that ended up that was the result that as I said in which almost four million people died but I think that that example is an important sort of roadmap for us to understand um, some of the sort of elements in terms of uh, the potential for, for for workers struggle and, and what those um, what's at stake there so um, just to touch on, you know, I started off this talk kind of touching on the way in which the examples from the sort of current uh, revolt against austerity has sort of, you know, uh, 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 spread across uh, parts of South, uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Just to sort of touch on a couple examples, there's been just over the past month or so, there's been protests in uh, places like uh, Uganda and Botswana, against uh, food hikes and so on, demands for uh, the dictator Museveni, uh, as the uh, the uh, denounced as the Hosni Mubarak of sub-Saharan Africa, um, strikes by you know in places uh, like like Zambia and so on and so forth, um, and in Zambia against actually Chinese-owned factories. But probably one of the um, so the, and this is just sort of a smattering of examples. But probably the most important place to look at right now is to look at um, South Africa and um, how the uh, class struggle has been intensified there in the in the battle over austerity. Um, I mean, for one, it um, has to be the starting point of uh, uh, immensely worsening conditions in South Africa since the end of apartheid. Um, uh 15, 16 years ago in which white income has continued to rise, but black income uh, has has actually dropped since the fall of apartheid. Um, the ANC the the uh, African National Congress kind of still wears its sort of sh- you know shroud of the, the revolutionary legacy of that struggle um shroud's probably not the right word. Mansell, yes, thank you, David. Um, and um, when it's sort of confronted with challenges to its its broken promises, but at this, but the other, uh, you know, sort of out of the other... The other side of it, you know, really goes on, you know, cutting taxes for corporations, holding on, paying apartheid-era debt, and basically not delivering on the demands of the uh, of the of the movements uh, against apartheid for um, to meet the, the the needs of of ordinary people in Africa. Um, so just you know, really to paint the the picture, um, you know, I talked about the the fall of. Uh, the 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 decline in black wealth I mean the the uh, black or whites still earn ten times more than blacks in South Africa fifteen percent of Africans live in shacks like literally in shacks um And added to this has been the sort of exacerbation of massive um, sort of obscene uh, personal consumption by the layer of South African elite that's just been a, a, a South African trade unionist called it a decadent sewer of conspicuous consumption, which, you know, I think is sort of fuel for the fire for, like, a militant uh, working class uh, uh, movement. The level of strikes and demonstrations has been jumping um, again, intensified by privatization and so on. That have really you can see the political evolution of them from single issue demands into into areas where whole communities in South Africa are really up in revolt um, and strikes and so on that have been and uh, uh, linked to them. For example, over uh, the, the, uh, pow- the the power the the power Company in South Africa has raised prices by 125 percent, and so there's like a link between community uh, community struggles and and workers. And this is actually um, there's become an environmental crisis in South Africa because I mean a, a number of fronts. But ESCOM, the power company, is uh, a massive coal produce uh, coal fired plant. It's the fourth largest. So you can see like uh, major political questions that are being uh, pushed to the stage by this, and it's also being paid for by uh, 75 billion. Dollar alone from the World Bank. So it's kind of a perfect sort of storm of of social issues um, and and, and fights that are coming together. There's a a number of of strikes and struggles. People may be familiar with some of the strikes that happened in the lead up to the World Cup last summer that kind of pushed this to the stage. But all this um, actually is sort of, you know, really almost like Prefaces to um, some. uh, There was a massive uh, public sector strike at the end of last summer. Over a million, over a million people demanding around demands for pay, housing, and so on. Um, And the ANC government, it it sort of goes without saying, did not hesitate to use full-on police brutality and and sort of repression. And there's, it's actually become somewhat of a. Uh, an issue, a, a developing crisis um, of police brutality um, for activists who there has um, been a number of them who have been killed by the police, um, in, including uh, a man named Andres tatan who became sort of a, 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 a well-known case in which he was trying to stop elderly people from being assaulted at a demonstration and he was shot, shot dead. So, I mean, le- needless to say, the ANC has become a very frequent target of strikes um, and protests and so so on um, over all kinds of uh, what's known as the um, service delivery protests, which around things like water, housing, and so on, um, and I think that the, um, the the political questions that are being forced to the fore about the ANC is becoming is becoming quite clear. I mean the the shack dweller, the, the, the landless peasant movement, which is the shack dwellers. Uh, movement, uh, you know, issued a statement in the big campaign that they have um, saying it's clear to all of us that there's no democracy in South Africa. Every time that there's an election, the poor are promised land, housing, water, electricity, toilets, education, jobs. After the elections, we are denied these things. Sometimes we are tortured and sometimes we are even killed. So I think that, um, you know, there's a couple important lessons to draw here from South Africa. One, is the clear potential that the working class has again because of its concentrated um oh my god uh 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 it role, its its role as a sort of concentrated uh, uh unifier and so on but in through in being uh, this st- in in strategic industries and so on but also in forging links with social movements and this is despite high levels of unemployment and so on um the um, and in which um, uh, you know uh, there there is in, in communities in South Africa very much of a, an interspersion or an inter um, an integration of both the employed and the unemployed who um, are uh, who experience um, this. Uh, you know, shared social conditions, and I think. that there's other political questions that confront the South African left, which is, which is, namely, about building an, a party, an independent uh, force, an organization that's that's separate from and independent of the of the ANC and also the South African Communist Party, who essentially operates as a sort of left flank. Within the South, that within the ANC, and as a break on independent organizing that exists outside of it, um, and really that's a, that's a challenge for the left in terms of fusing uh, uh, the unfinished. Struggles of the apartheid era with um, a, a larger systemic challenge. Um, so, the uh, South African socialist Trevor Ngwame, who is himself a socialist who was expelled uh, from the Communist Party, describes the task ahead. Um, he said this just at the end of the wake of the public sector strike last year, um, described very well, I think. Uh, what's, what's what's at stake ahead. He said, "...the struggle is about alternatives, fighting to put in power a government that consistently puts the interests of the working class first. A workers' government, the solidity and breadth of the public sector strike indicates that the seeds of something better, albeit scattered in the isolated, different working class outbursts, are beginning to grow." the social weight of organized, mobilized workers is beginning to consolidate. It's not just about the ANC, SACP, or KUSA, too, that's the Trade Union Federation, nor is it about the government, the state, the capitalist leadership, or the left. It is about what millions of ordinary working-class people are thinking and feeling and beginning to do. Um, I was going to say something about Nigeria, but I don't have time because um, I don't have time. Um, so just to sort of um, sum up, though, I think that the... What's being, what's being raised in these struggles is, and, the, and the questions both about the potential of unity um, but also the, uh, the political challenges the need for independence I think is also what's happening in Africa because of these massive sort of contradictions that I uh, attempted to describe in the first part of my talk in terms of the, 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 the contradictions of resources in an immensely wealthy area in which uh, uh, the deprivation and inequality continue to be fueled I think is also raising larger questions for activists as well about the nature of society as a whole and the kind of, you know, vision that's being forced, uh, attempted to be forced down on ordinary Africans from you know globalization and so on. And there's a great, um, I love this quote, it's this, an activist position, petition to the World Petroleum Congress where they sort of Point out I think some some of this vision that 's sort of starting to emerge from activists um, at every point in the fossil fuel production chain chain where your members add value and make profit ordinary worker ordinary people workers in their environments are assaulted and impoverished and there 's a lot to be said about what oil companies, I didn't get time to do this, have done to the environment um, in Africa, um, where oil is drilled, pumped, processed, and used in Africa's elsewhere. Ecological systems have been trashed, people's lives have been destroyed, and the democratic aspirations and their rights and cultures trampled. Your energy future threatens the global environment, imposing on all of us the chaos and uncertainty of climate change and the violence and destruction of war. Another energy future is necessary. Yours has failed. I think it's very very um, powerful statement. African social movements in the working class are building, are currently in the process of building movements to take on some of the worst exploitation that exists on the globe. And I think the less clear, a a clear, the, an important task, and a clear task, to, is to build leadership that's independent of both the, nas- the politics of nationals and the politics of independent—I uh, 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 mean, of, of national development—but also the politics of, of, of uh, reprocess, neoliberalism, NGOization, and so on. The resources more than exist to meet human need. Oxfam. Uh, predicts that by uh, 2015, resources in African oil-producing countries will exceed the amount that they need, need to meet all development needs by $35 billion a year. The, what, so the resources absolutely exist. The, the biggest obstacle is a global system built on profit, and working-class resistance is necessary and possible for its transformation. But building independent working-class organization has to remain a key step towards that liberation.